So I'm starting to feel a little old because I've lived already through two libertarian moments. Now, the first was in 2008 when our friends over at Reason Magazine, as part of their 40th anniversary issue, ran a title, um, the lead article called The Libertarian Moment. And Nick Gillespie and Matt Welsh compared 2008 to the era of the 1970s. And they wrote, if 1971 contained a few flickers of light in the authoritarian darkness, 2008 is chock full of halogen bright beacons shouting this way. That's supposed to mock us. <laughs> <laughs> this was in December 2008. And um, these halogen bright beacons, I, I got to wonder if voters got a little disoriented because it kind of was like the light bright lights of NSA's interrogation room. Because shortly after that libertarian moment, we had the bailouts, Obamacare, more undeclared wars, NSA spying, EPA mandates, executive overreach, and so on. So of course, we needed a second libertarian moment. And thankfully, the New York Times delivered six years later. Um, a front page uh, New York Times magazine cover story breathlessly asked, has the libertarian moment finally arrived? The author argued that libertarianism, after years in the intellectual wilderness, kept alive by the folks here at Cato and at Reason, finally was going mainstream. And the evidence? Rand Paul. You know, I love this magazine cover uh, from the New York Times. Look at this, this black and white, sort of distressed clippings from a crazy libertarian newsletter from the 1970s. You've got a photo negative of Rand Paul down here, and in all caps, major threat. All I have to say about this is uh, at least the editors in the title of the article inside this issue, they gave us a question mark. You know, this is the editor's lazy way of not really picking a side. The libertarian moment has finally arrived, question mark. Um, it kind of absolves them of all responsibility of a failed prediction. Of course, in this topsy-turvy election season, um, a lot of pundits in Washington have had to um, live up to their own failed predictions, and many of us can be accused of wishful thinking. Like, gee, of course Donald Trump will say something so outrageous that he'll disqualify himself before Election Day. Do you remember that advice from Republican strategists? Wishful thinking particularly after last night. Of course, the more relevant wishful thinking for tonight's debate is around policy. The libertarian moment was based on an idea that trends in public opinion around gay marriage, drug legalization, a weirdness with war, revealed a fundamental libertarian undercurrent in America. Yet when the breakout candidates of an election cycle or are an authoritarian on one hand, and a socialist on the other, as Ayn Rand would say, check your premises. Tonight's debate at Cato is about doing exactly this. We're owning up to our own cheerleading around the libertarian moment. We said, let's be brave. Let's have this debate out in the open, right under those halogen bright lights of liberty. So here's the question for the debate. Is all this talk of a libertarian moment simply wishful thinking? Or maybe the libertarian moment was never about politics in the first place. Maybe in the longer sweep of history, we're actually freer and more prosperous than we ever imagined. 
And tonight we've assembled perhaps the best speakers in Washington to debate this question, and you guys as the audience get to judge for yourselves. So my name's David Kirby. I'm a vice president and senior fellow at Cato. So let me quickly introduce the format for tonight's debate, introduce the speakers, and then let them get at it. Um, as you can tell, evening debates at Cato, we try to have a little bit more fun. Um, this is not a time to just sit silently and politely listen. We'd like to encourage you to do a little cheering for your side of the debate, or even to do a little good-natured heckling. Now, personally, I've always admired the British House of Commons, where the prime minister takes and stands for questions. You know what I'm talking about. It's like a ship full of drunken pirates. They're, they're banging the table. They're saying, here, here, and for shame, sir, for shame. It's Tories and labor giving each other a hard time. So this is your chance. Maybe you can pretend you're in the House of Commons and channel your inner pirate. By show of applause, let's just get this um, you know, practice. I'd like to see what side of the debate people are on. How many people believe that the libertarian moment was simply wishful thinking? By applause. OK, OK. Now, uh, by applause, how many people believe the libertarian moment was never about politics in the first place? OK. Well, good luck to you guys. And for you introverts, in the audience who feel a little uncomfortable cheering or heckling, feel free to tweet your heckles to hashtag CatoDebate. Again, that's hashtag CatoDebate. That way, the whole Twitter world can feel your inner pirate. So good luck, guys. OK, so format for tonight's debate. Each speaker will have seven to eight minutes opening statements, followed by two to three minute rebuttals. Then we'll take audience questions. And after the debate, I hope you will all join the speakers for drinks. Let me introduce the speakers in the order they will present. David Bose is the executive vice president of the Cato Institute, author of The Libertarian Mind, and editor of Libertarian Reader. David's perhaps the most relentless advocate for libertarianism in the last 40 years and the intellectual enforcer here at Cato. I also give David points for bravery because just eight days after Rand Paul suspended his presidential campaign, he posted new data on Cato's blog from Gallup showing that libertarians are a larger percentage of the public than conservatives, liberals, or populists. Go figure. Now, Ramesh Panuru is a senior editor at National Review, a columnist for Bloomberg View, and a visiting fellow at American Enterprise Institute. And I love Ramesh but he's been harassing us libertarian cheerleaders since at least 2006. Ramesh is always a clear and succinct thinker. In fact, he only needed six words to tell us what he thought after Rand Paul suspended his campaign. There never was a libertarian <laughs> moment. Ouch, Ramesh. But I have to say, even though he considers himself a conservative, a little known fact about Ramesh, the very first ballot he cast in a presidential election was for a libertarian. Maru in 92. There you go. Now, Matt Welsh, as many of you know, editor-in-chief of Reason Magazine, co-author of the book-length treatment of the libertarian moment, the Declaration of Independence, former co-host of Fox News show Independence, and a current uh, working on a Cyrus um, show uh, for radio. What I love about Matt is I've learned more than anybody else in Washington from him that politics 
often follows culture. And he's a pretty hip dude. And libertarians could use a little help on the cultural change. So we thank Matt for that. Finally, Connor Friedersdorf is a staff writer at The Atlantic. In 2014, Connor wrote, in my opinion, what was the most thoughtful piece on the libertarian moment, arguing that it was neither dangerous nor doomed. And what I love about Connor is he often stands as a neutral arbiter in these debates. He joins us from Venice Beach, California. So without further ado, please join me in giving a warm House of Commons welcome to David Bose. Thanks, David. If anybody actually starts giving me House of Commons heckling, I'm going to quote the Dowager Countess. Libertarians hate to be given good news. Um, if you want to know about that, just go look at the responses that I got on Facebook and Twitter when I posted this debate. Was the libertarian moment wishful thinking? Everybody said yes, yes. Libertarians don't like to be told that their ideas might win, that more people share their ideas than they think. I don't know why that is. Um, some people like uh, bunker mentality, I guess. Maybe we've actually been beaten down so much. But I think that uh, those people are too negative. I think they don't look at the sweep of history. And in the sweep of history, the main point I would make here is America is a libertarian moment. Not one particular year, not one particular day, but in the scope of history, America is a libertarian moment. Historians and political scientists have always identified the fundamental American ethos as values such as individualism, laissez-faire, anti-statism, and that's different from most places in the world and most of history. Closer to our own time, one of the things that I think we can say about the nature of politics in our modern times, I got this originally from Mark Lilla, is the 60s and the 80s both happened. And they actually happened in the same generation. The 60s, a decade of cultural liberation, of sexual liberation, uh, counterculture, that sort of thing. The 80s were the era of Reagan's tax cuts, Reagan's entrepreneurialism, the beginnings of Silicon Valley, and as I think Lilla said, uh, the, the theme of both of those decades is do your own thing. Now, the people who voted for Reagan may not have thought they had something in common with the people from the 60s, although I'll bet some of them were the people from the 60s, but the fact is do your own thing was the, the, the central element of both of those times. And in that sense, the 60s and the 80s were both quintessentially American. Because in America, many of our social movements over two centuries have been reiterating these fundamental values of individualism, anti-statism, and laissez-faire. Abolitionism, the anti-war movement eventually, the civil rights movements, the women's movement that took much of the 20th century. All of these things uh, were part of the basic American idea. David Kirby and I have written a lot about the libertarian vote. How many libertarians are there in the American electorate? We can find all kinds of different numbers. I can give you, uh, I can give you a dozen different numbers. Right now, I'll just give you about four. David and I used a fairly tough uh, uh, criterion in our study, the libertarian vote. We used three questions from Gallup and other a uh, series of public po opinion polling. And we said the people who said yes to all three of these questions are libertarian. We got about 15%. However, 
we tried something else. We said, you know, one of the one of the essential points about libertarianism for American politics is everybody talks about the blue Democratic base, the red Republican base. We said, what about people who don't fit into either one of those bases? That's what libertarians feel like. What would, what would identify people who don't fit into either one of those bases? Well, one way is simply to say to people, would you describe yourself as fiscally conservative and socially liberal? Pretty loose definition of libertarian, but it does mean you're saying, I don't quite fit into that Republican box. I don't quite fit into that Democratic box. And so we did a poll in 2006, and we found that 59% of the respondents said, I would describe myself as fiscally conservative and socially liberal. Now, half the survey got a different question, which was, would you describe yourself as fiscally conservative and socially liberal, also known as libertarian? Now, we knew when we put this unusual, maybe not well-known word uh, onto it, that that would reduce the number. Took it down to 44%. So 44% of Americans were willing to accept the term libertarian if it meant fiscally conservative and socially liberal. That was a lot more than I expected, so I thought that was pretty good. And as David said, uh, every year the Gallup poll I, uh, asks two questions, one about should the government promote traditional values, and the other about should the government be doing more things to solve social problems. And on the basis of just those two questions, they divide respondents into four categories, libertarian, conservative, liberal, and populist. And for the first time this past year, 2015 in the fall, they found libertarians at 27% of the electorate, slightly bigger than conservatives, followed by liberals and populists. So I think that's a good sign for the idea that there might be a, a, a libertarian moment. And what have we seen in this era that the number of libertarians that Gallup finds has gone up? Well, we know that Obamacare never had majority support, not before it was passed, not the day it was passed, not today. We know that Obamacare and the stimulus and Obama's other big government programs have driven Democratic numbers all over the political system down, down, down. We know that despite some great provocations by terrible events, Congress has not passed any new gun control. But all of that looks like a turn to the right, and yet at the same time those things were happening. We're seeing an opening up on marijuana laws. We saw a political as well as a judicial revolution on gay marriage. Um, that suggests more than a turn to the right. It suggests libertarian instincts on all of those issues. Now, that doesn't mean that we're saying any percentage of the American public is Rothbardians or even Randians. We're saying there are people who generally think more freedom on a range of issues would be a good thing, and we're seeing that in polls. This year, we're dealing with Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton, all of whom are not encouraging. But we also know there are more people telling pollsters they're independent than ever before in history. We're seeing angry voters being more numerous. We're seeing the lowest numbers ever of people saying they trust government to do the right thing most of the time. That's a pretty good basis, it seems to me. And maybe if we had had a celebrity libertarian candidate, maybe if we had had a libertarian candidate who had been on a hit television show for several years, that candidate might have tapped into that anger and that independence, at least as well as the candidate who is, in fact, doing that. Trump voters hate Washington. 
They want an outsider. They want a businessman, not a politician. They want a businessman to go in there and burn the place down. And except for the Cato Institute, that's generally a good idea. Um, and I do think a different kind of anti-Washington appeal could have captured a lot of that vote. Still, he's bad news, and so is Hillary, and maybe that means that a sensible, accomplished Libertarian Party candidate could finally get some traction against candidates as bad as they're likely to face this time. And speaking of wishful thinking, maybe a President Trump or even a President Hillary Clinton would finally inspire Congress to remember that it is the first branch of government, the lawmaking branch, and step up and rein in presidential excesses now that you can see just how bad that is. But let me move away from America and let me say the largest trends in the world, not without counter trends, are toward human rights, women's rights, gay rights, democratic governance, and freer markets. If you look at history, if you think about the aspects of classical liberalism that were once radical and are now mainstream, free trade, the general idea that trading with people gets you more uh, wealth, more success than taking things from people. Um, equal rights for men and women, equal rights for people of different colors, gay rights, all of those things, an end to conscription, those are in historical context, radically liberal or libertarian ideas, and they're now mainstream ideas. So if we're not quite in a libertarian moment, we are at least in a libertarianish era, and we shouldn't be as depressed as libertarians usually are. Uh, so I guess my role here is to speak up for depression. Uh, and if any of you heckle, I will uh, just uh, say uh, Cato stacked it with a bunch of donors. That seems to be the <laughs> way these things are handled these days. Um, uh, I have been, I guess, uh, harassing um, my libertarian friends uh, for some time about some of these issues. Uh, but I should clarify that uh, while I think of myself as a, as a former libertarian, I'm not an ex-libertarian in the way that the, so many of the founders of National Review were ex-communists. Uh, I, I, I think uh, that libertarians get a lot of things right. I think there are important elements of the truth and uh, that they have a very salutary, you have a very salutary effect on a lot of the uh, policy debates that we have. Um, so when I uh, offer a skeptical note about the libertarian moment, uh, I don't mean to be disputing any of the merits of libertarianism uh, in so doing, um, nor am I saying that libertarianism is dead uh, or um, uh, denying that there are, in fact, libertarian impulses uh, in the public, some of which have strengthened over time. And I'll, I'm also willing to concede that uh, Senator Paul uh, is, uh, is not a perfect test case for libertarianism in a libertarian moment. Politicians rarely are perfect test cases for any political philosophy. Uh, and I think you could make a reasonable case that, uh, that Senator Paul made a real error in not running as a purer libertarian uh, and running as a more distinctive kind of Republican in this race. It still wouldn't have won in the nomination, but uh, I think that's a perfectly fair argument, probably true. Uh, but my overall point is that uh, libertarians shouldn't kid themselves about the appeal of their political philosophy. 
uh, and uh, and its prevalence. Uh, I think, you know, that goes. That's also true of conservatives. I think uh, we are getting a, a bit of a lesson right now um, that uh, uh, conservatives have sometimes kitted themselves, kitted ourselves, uh, about the extent of popular support for our ideas, and in a lot of cases, it's the places where our ideas overlap with yours um, that are turning out not to have the kind of support that, uh, that we might have hoped for. Um, so I'll, I'll, uh, I'll divide this up into, into two basic points. The first one is that um, the libertarian vote uh, seems to me to be pretty small. Um, so, for example, I, I would imagine that a, probably a, a decent percentage of the people in this room think that we should expand immigration and uh, downsize Social Security. Um, well, Pew uh, ran some numbers on that uh, two years ago, and they found that about 0.6% of the U.S. population um, holds both of those views. Um, again, doesn't mean those views are wrong, but 0.6% uh, is, uh, that's, that's a number that, that should, I think, make you uh, stop in your tracks. Um, Jocelyn Kiley of, uh, of Pew uh, found that about 11% of the public was willing to give itself the libertarian label. Um, but even that uh, is less impressive than it may sound. This is also, again, 2014, sort of when, when uh, that Times Magazine piece about the libertarian moment hit. Uh, and uh, if you look, dig into that 11%, only 65% of those people supported marijuana legalization. That's pathetic. I've supported marijuana legalization a lot longer than that. I'm not even a libertarian. You guys need to work on your fellow libertarians on, uh, on some of these issues. Uh, a slightly higher than average percentage of the population that, that as libertarians were, self-described libertarians were a tiny bit more likely than your average person to say that we should allow peace, excuse me, we should allow police to stop and search all people who look like crime suspects, which doesn't sound like it's the kind of thing I'd be hearing from the criminal justice uh, scholars here at Cato. Um, so when she, when Pew dug into issues uh, and tried to do a cluster analysis where different people's views placed them, they came up with an estimate of uh, the libertarian percentage of our population at about five, um, which frankly sound just seems more plausible to me than 59 or 44 or some of these other numbers um, that uh, get thrown around. I think it makes more sense of political trends um, that uh, uh, it's not that... Um, you know, politicians have just sort of, for some reason, ignored this 59% of their market, um, but that it is, is actually a, a small market. Now, the good news for libertarians is that you punch way above your weight. You have much more influence in the political debate uh, than your numbers alone would suggest. Um, but uh, it also suggests to me that... Um, that the, the potential for a mass libertarian politics, uh, at least right now, is just not there. Now, the second point I would make, um, and I understand, it sort of goes to the, the notion that the, sort of the libertarian moment is actually kind of a pre-political concept. It's not about who's winning primaries. Uh, I mean, it better not be, given, <laughs> given the way things are going. Um, 
these things, these ideas, these phrases, they tend to take a life of their own, and they may not always get used in the political debate the exact way we wanted them to when we came up with them. As, as a guy who's written a lot about reform conservatism, I know all about how that, uh, how that process works. Um, but I would say that the popularity of the libertarian moment really was tied to a set of ideas about politics, about politicians, about votes. Um, and if folks wanted to correct that impression, they may, maybe they should have done a little bit more of that in 2014 uh, and not be in the position now of insisting, well, you know, it's really nothing to do with Rand Paul and how well he does uh, in the primaries. Um, the Great Reason essay, which is it's good, it's interesting, it's a worthwhile essay to read, uh, defined the libertarian mo- moment as a time of increasingly hyper-individualized, hyper-expanded choice over every aspect of our lives, from 401ks to hot and cold running coffee drinks, from life-saving pharmaceuticals to online dating services. And the essay went on to uh, say that that moment was, this libertarian moment is based on a consensus around two hard-won insights. Markets are generally preferable, being the first insight, The second insight, that at least vaguely representative democracy is the least worst form of government. Well, if that's what the libertarian moment is, if that's all it means, then I'm happy to concede that we are, in fact, in a libertarian moment. Uh, But I would just make two points. First, if that's the way we define it, then we've been in a libertarian moment for a really, really, really long time, maybe even since 1787. Uh, And maybe the word moment is not one that we should be applying here. Uh, And the second is that maybe we shouldn't be applying the word libertarian either um, because you can have rising choice and you can support representative democracy while also having growing government and uh, public support for growing government. Um, I would just... I'll close by saying, you know, what um, Matt's co-author on the libertarian moment uh, essay recently was talking about um, Rand Paul uh, in one of those articles. He was, he was being interviewed uh, about, well, does this mean the libertarian moment is over? Does this mean the libertarian moment is dead? Uh, and he said, the Republican Party is not yet succeeding at the national level in terms of presidential elections because they don't get libertarianism yet. I, I would just say that's an interesting thesis. Uh, I don't see any evidence for that thesis. Um, and, uh, and I think that it is a kind of wishful thinking to which everybody in politics, regardless of their political philosophy, is all too prone. Thank you. I'm a father of a seven-year-old, and I guess this is what it feels like when you're uh your seven-year-old kid uh, comes home from school and the principal says she's been smearing the walls with her own feces uh, here. Um, as someone who co-wrote uh, the essay with this title in question and published it in the magazine, I feel uh, obviously some sense of responsibility uh, for all of this. And I thought it might be helpful to describe a little bit about what we were thinking um, at the time. As David pointed out, this was in our anniversary issue in 2008, the 40th anniversary issue um, that came out in December. And of course, due to the miracle of magazine lead times, that meant it was actually written in October of 2008. Now let's think, what was happening around October of 2008? Well, we had just had a Republican president uh, stand up on live TV and give a speech in which he said, normally uh, I'm in favor of uh, free market capitalism, but 
Um, we had the Republican uh, the, the nominee for president whose signature legislative achievement was to curtail the First Amendment so that people couldn't criticize politicians and who otherwise major contribution to policy was introducing the notion of rogue state rollback. Look it up, it's fun. Um, he suspended his campaign so he can go back to Washington and support the bailout of the banks. So this was the moment that we were writing. There was a gay marriage ballot initiative in California and it was against gay marriage. Uh, there wasn't anything about the political, headline political moment in the fall of 2008 when we wrote that thing that looked libertarian at all, with the possible exception of, of the unlikely semi-success of the Ron Paul movement there. Um, so part of what we were doing was kind of the, um, the Jim Carrey and Dumb and Dumber, like, so you're saying there's a chance uh, thing. Uh, if you're being uncharitable, you could say it's like a bunch of... Uh, you know, Marxists sitting around in December of 1989 and saying, well, you know, it's just we got to, socialism's going to really make a comeback any day now. But actually, we were making a point, which is that if you allow yourself to be distracted constantly, which everybody does, because it's our jobs, and it's also interesting consumer sport, but if you allow yourself to get distracted only by headline-making politics, presidential headline-making politics in Olympic years in particular, then you're going to miss a lot of interesting stuff. And what we uh, argued was that a lot of the interesting stuff that's happening in America has a specific, has a, a, a strong libertarian cast to it in a way that's going to ripple through, already has been rippling through culture and society chiefly. And politics, we're using this uh, in this moment, which was a terrifying moment for politics, um, is the last place to be affected by the thing that's otherwise revolutionizing how we do business, how we talk to one another, how we live. We are in this era of hyper-personalization where individuals are finding incredible amounts of autonomy and wherever there is a gatekeeper telling them what to do, whether it's a stupid taxi monopoly, whatever it is, whether it's a booking, remember travel agents? Let's say we to a travel agent, right? I used to, but now it doesn't make any sense, right? So we rerouted around all of those things. What we were arguing in this initial essay is that this is happening. It's with us. It's going to happen to politics and governance last. Literally, they will be the last ones to see it happen because they have a guaranteed revenue stream and we can't really get around it. Uh, but even then, within the tumult of politics, if you look closely, there are indicators that some interesting stuff is going on. There um, was a piece that weirdly didn't get as much traction uh, that I wrote uh, two years after this thing came out. And I wonder if there's a headline issue. So the libertarian moment on one hand, and this one was called the permanent non-governing minority. And that somehow just didn't, uh, didn't uh, take off. But what I uh, argued there is that every two years in American politics, if we are going to look at the headline-making politics, but every two years in American politics, a new thing arises that nobody had predicted before. My God, this whole new block rose up out of nowhere and surprised anybody. Maybe it coalesced around a candidate, or maybe in the case of the Tea Party, it just happened, or Occupy Wall Street for that matter. It just kind of happened, takes everybody by surprise, and it's usually an expression of people, a sizable block of people who have felt disrespected either by the system itself or by their own tribe, saying, 
the things that you have been talking about and saying that you've been valuing all these years, you actually haven't been. And so screw you. We're going to uh, band together using these tools of decentralization and technology to change things up and defy all logic and upset the apple cart. This is happening now like clockwork. It's happening this year with Donald Trump. When I, one thing I wrote in this permanent non-government, I can't even say it, uh, essay is that sometimes this will be in a pro-freedom movement and it'll be exciting. Other times it won't, and that'll be, uh, that'll be difficult. What makes this happen, the, the volatility of it, is the collapse of the two brands of Democratic and Republican brands. Um, it's, it, it's still amazing to me that Republicans have lost market share as an affiliation, not as a, necessarily as a political party that owns uh, offices all around the country. They did pretty well in 20, 000, uh, 2014. But it's amazing to me that Republicans ha haven't become more popular in the age of Obama, because a lot of what Obama has done, as David Bowes mentioning, has not been particularly popular, and the financial situation, the economic situation hasn't been good. So when you have this shrinking down of affiliation and this rise of independence, no, those independents aren't all libertarians, and no, they're not necessarily independent in the way that they vote. But when you have this large number of people who don't feel a natural team membership, that makes them volatile and mobile, right? If they all get mad about something at the same time and go over here, that's going to surprise you. So we're in the age of kind of perpetual political surprise. And so yes, let, let's talk a little bit about those headline politics that we're not supposed to get distracted with. Because in 2008, compared to now, in this absolutely lousy political moment for libertarians, right? We didn't have Rand Pauls in the Senate back then. We didn't have Republicans who said, let's actually cut military spending year over year. That was fantasy, and yet it happened kind of recently. We didn't have, California tried to legalize recreational pot in 2010 and got smacked down, right? That's two years after the libertarian moment story. Now we have legal weed as a thing that happens. The culture embraced gay culture and gay marriage. The courts eventually kind of caught on uh, to that. All of that happens, some of it is political, but a lot of it happens outside where people use forces to root around things like that. I commend to everybody uh, a, uh, uh, a piece that Jesse Walker, uh, great reason, books editor um, uh, and, uh, and staffer there, uh, wrote just today. He was talking about uh, thinking about libertarian moments and all this kind of stuff. And he suggested, and I agree with him, that there's a more useful way of looking at this, which is, um, there are a couple of different things. One he calls libertarian intervals, and one uh, is, the other one is libertarian disillusionments. So the intervals are periods of time in between kind of catastrophic events or government organizing principles in which people kind of got their freak on a little bit. There's more broad-based pro prosperity. The government mattered less. So the Roaring Twenties, the interval between World War I and the Great Depression, it wasn't done by libertarians, but if you were to look at it and measure it objectively, you say a lot of libertarian stuff kind of happened there. Um, the 90s, uh, those of us of a certain age remember with, with a lot of fondness, uh, this interval between the end of the Cold War and 9-11 was an era of great experimentation and fun. The government mattered less and people were uh, trying to figure things out. Uh, Jesse also points out the period of time between the end of World War II and the beginning in 1948 or so of kind of the heavy Cold War, that was also a period of government downsizing. People were being more experimental with things. So those are the libertarian intervals. Uh, but then you have the uh, libertarian disillusionments. 
um, which he identified two, and I agree. Uh, one is the 1970s, which is our principal kind of uh, analogy that we made both in our original essay and the Declaration of Independence. Um, and the other one is the one that we're living through right now and have been since 2007 and 2008. The disillusionment period is when there's widespread belief that the centers of authority and power have screwed it up and people are kind of just unhappy. Uh, if you look at public opinion polls throughout the 70s, I mean, everyone was, inflation was uh, meant everything. Crime was going uh, off the hook. People just felt like the rails were coming off. New York City was, we needed to sort of chop it off and send it out with the Japanese current or something like that. It just, it wasn't going well. Uh, and this was a period where libertarians didn't win necessarily. It's a lot of tumult. Sometimes it goes in an authoritarian direction. Sometimes it goes into a libertarian direction. So it's up for grabs. And I think that's uh, analogous to what we have right now. I mean, 2013, for a lot of people in this room, was kind of the libertarian Christmas year, right? I mean, Edward Snowden comes out. Uh, there's this widespread backlash against the NSA and surveillance state stuff. Uh, and, uh, and all this looked like it was going to be great. And this leads to the uh, New York Times uh, cover story and things like that. But I would suggest to you that we are in this period of it's up for grabs. And so is it wishful thinking? I want to say absolutely yes. I'm going to argue against myself in that sense that there's nothing wrong with wishing this to be so. It's an opportunity to actually fight in a moment where there are hearts and especially emotions out there up for grabs to make these arguments and try to win and don't just take your ball and go home when you lose. Thanks. So as we gather today, uh, Donald Trump is as well positioned as anyone to lead the world's oldest democracy. If he wins, I held out hope he may sour on America and leave us for a younger Eastern European country. <laughs> but if he puts his name in gold letters atop the White House and sticks around for four years, our next best hope is that right and left, Congress and the courts, the whole anti-Trump alliance, see new urgency in safeguarding civil liberties and reigning in executive power in limiting surveillance and what I call tyrant-proofing the White House, like paranoid parents child-proofing for a reckless toddler. Now, there are people with different political views than mine who say we found, and this is a quote, the perfect leader for America's moment of perfect permanent constitutional crisis, a person who cares more about results than process, who cares more about winning the battle than being well-liked, and a person who believes in asking what they can get away with rather than what would look best. You may be surprised to learn that that isn't Breitbart.com on Donald Trump. It's Matt Iglesias describing Hillary Clinton at Vox before Donald Trump's rise. If she wins, the progressive left will unfortunately opt out of this tyrant-proofing project that I'd like to see happen. Uh, Matt went on, committed Democrats and liberal-leaning interest groups are facing a reality in which any policy gains they achieve will come through the profligate use of executive authority, and Clinton is almost uniquely suited to deliver the goods. More than almost anyone else, she knows where the levers of power lie, and she is comfortable pulling them, procedural niceties be damned. A kind of democratic Dick Cheney in that sense. <laughs> then again, maybe Ted Cruz will pull out a victory, and I'm afraid in that case that while Democrats will rediscover their Bush-era objections to executive power, Republicans may well bring back John Yoo and offer defenses of police officers so unqualified you'd swear that they don't have YouTube. Ted Cruz has also come out in favor of the FBI as it tries to secure a backdoor into all of our smartphones. So 
As usual, there are mostly worrying scenarios, maybe only worrying scenarios this election cycle. Still, I stand by a belief that libertarianism is just fine, that it's won some big victories in the very recent past, and I expect it to win more. Back in 2014, amid a debate about whether America was having a libertarian moment, I urged against judging this question based on an unrealistic standard. Conservatives and progressives are widely judged with the understanding that most political change happens gradually and on the margins. But especially in the press, antagonists and champions alike often act as if libertarian success would mean a radical shift toward an ideologically pure, uncompromising small government utopia or dystopia, depending on who you ask. In reality, of course, libertarian ideas will only ever be implemented incompletely and gradually in the system of checks and balances that we have. And the question is whether future voters will support policies that enhance liberty compared to the status quo. If that's what we mean by a libertarian moment, I think that we're coming off several and we can expect many more. In recent memory, well, uh, you know, Matt touched on some of what I was going to talk about, legalized marijuana, uh, gay marriage, and uh, so I'll skip over them, but say these are huge things that increase the freedom of many millions of people in significant ways. Libertarians do face a long, hard fight on surveillance, and there's no guarantee of victory. At the same time, if you would have asked someone 20 years ago, if you would have described the ubiquitous video that we see now, they would have thought that you were describing a kind of Orwellian dystopia. And yet, what's actually happened is that citizens have turned these cameras around and captured unprecedented footage of police misbehavior, proving a degree of abuse that libertarians have long known about, that, but that most Americans had to see to believe. So surely the prospect of significantly reducing the number of people that police officers wrongfully kill or wrongfully throw in literal cages is a bright moment for libertarians. Surely the dismantling of a place like Ferguson that was fining people with small fines and throwing them in prison, uh, surely it's a great libertarian moment that we're finally starting to see reforms of those places. Of course, a lot of these bright moments aren't going to coincide, coincide with political success for libertarian politicians because the nature of our two-party system is that as libertarian ideas become popular and electorally viable, they get co-opted by non-libertarians. That's fine. We don't need credit, just victories. It isn't necessarily going to be libertarian principles embraced by the public that make for a libertarian moment either. The Iraq catastrophe turned Americans away from interventionism more than any principled embrace of libertarian ideas. At the same time, war is the health of the state. Nothing increases the power of government and impinges on civil liberties more reliably than major military conflicts. And now both major parties are willing to elevate presidential candidates who argue for non-interventionism. President Obama is in the pages of The Atlantic sounding like Dwight Eisenhower warning against the military-industrial complex. Bernie Sanders is openly anti-war. The only heartening thing to me about Donald Trump's rise is seeing someone stand on a Republican debate stage, declare the Iraq war and intervention in the Middle East utterly idiotic, and then win a string of GOP primaries even across the South. Back in 2014, I argued that the failures of Democrats and Republicans would create an opening for libertarian-leaning independents to make gains with the public. If they could transcend the cult of personality that surrounded Ron Paul, avoid picking misguided counterproductive battles like the one over raising the debt ceiling, and embrace a conception of liberty that isn't so narrowly focused on tax rates, property rights, and the safety net. All those things are important, but they're not all there is. And clearly, the electorate was willing to think outside the box this election cycle, and libertarians didn't put themselves in a position to benefit. 
I think Rand Paul misread the electorate and spent too much time shoring up his conservative bona fides at the very moment when the conservative movement fell apart. More broadly, when progressives win with hugely charismatic guys like Bill Clinton and Barack Obama and Republicans win with hugely charismatic guys like Ronald Reagan and George W. Bush, and the most charismatic candidate that libertarians can offer is Gary Johnson, it's not really a test of whether the ideas behind the man are getting approved or disapproved by voters. I'm also very glad to see Rand Paul in the Senate. I wish Gary Johnson would actually run for Senate in New Mexico. I think that some libertarians are overly obsessed with affecting change through the presidency. Uh, getting a f even a few more libertarians in the Senate could be a significant boon to the movement. Uh, overall, we're a big, sprawling, complicated nation, and we face an array of complex policy challenges. I often think libertarians have good answers, but they don't have all the answers any more than any other ideological faction. I do think they have one advantage over their more mainstream competitors, and it springs from the law of diminishing returns. We've tried the most popular and viable conservative and progressive ideas. A lot of the best libertarian ideas, in my view, remain untried. Where libertarians have a realistic chance of winning over their fellow citizens, standing for strong encryption, eliminating inane professional licensing laws, insisting on due process, avoiding wars of choice, ending the war on drugs, reducing overlong jail sentences, reforming police, their ideas would bring huge benefits. And that's why I expect future libertarian moments to be driven by voters who aren't yet sold on the entire libertarian project. Okay, now we have a short round of two to three minute responses for the, um, for the panelists, and we can do it from your seats or the podium, starting with David. All right, I think I can just stay here. Um, uh, just a couple of points. Uh, Ramesh said, well, you know, there aren't very many libertarians, and uh, a poll showed that self-styled libertarians, only 65% of them supported marijuana legalization. That is indeed pretty weak. However, um, I think that's probably true of most ideological groups. I always suspected that most of the votes the Libertarian Party got, um, whether it was one, two, even four or five percent sometimes in state elections, uh, were probably just uh, up yours or none of the above uh, votes. So one of the interesting things we did in that 2006 poll that uh, Zogby conducted for us was to oversample in Arizona, where they had libertarian candidates running for governor and senator that year, who had gotten, I think, 3 and 4% in those races. And we discovered that three-quarters of the people who said they had voted libertarian also gave libertarian answers to our three questions. Now, again, that doesn't make them Rothbardians, but it does mean that they had a general libertarian sense of life, and so most Libertarian Party voters did have that. Now, that doesn't mean that most people with libertarian sense of life are voting for the Libertarian Party, obviously. Um, right now, National Review is finding out that the great American uh, conservative base that it puts so much faith in can be seduced by a bombastic, authoritarian-leaning, philosophically unmoored protectionist nationalist. So if you went out and polled people who called themselves conservatives, God knows what you might come up with. Um, 
Wishful thinking, Ted Cruz thinks there's a hidden conservative evangelical vote that will just turn out for somebody who isn't as weak as Mitt Romney, who only called for self-deportation of the 11 million uh, illegal aliens, um, illegal immigrants. Uh, conservatives about six years ago, seven years ago, thought that gay marriage was so unpopular that they could start a boycott of businessmen who supported gay marriage proposition in, in the Proposition 8 fight. And boy, talk about spitting in the wind and having it come back in your face. Uh, they discovered that right at that moment, even though California voted in favor of Prop 8 to overrule gay marriage, opinion among people who had enough money and enough articulateness to write about this or to boycott companies came back and slapped them and it turned out to be all the supporters of Proposition 8 who ended up suffering from boycotts and at that point conservatives, possibly different conservatives, denounced the un-American tactic of boycotting. But it was in fact conservatives who started it in the Prop 8 fight. They wanted to punish businessmen who were supporting gay marriage and they were wrong about that. They were wishfully thinking. And of course, Bernie Sanders' whole program is wishful thinking, so you find it all over the political spectrum. Uh, just one more point. Sometimes it seems to me, and Connor sort of gave examples of where libertarian ideas, possibly not all that ideologically, but libertarian ideas have actually found some success um, in the political sphere. I've been thinking recently, it seems like there's a tendency that people are willing to listen to libertarians until the exact moment that the bad consequences we predict happen. And at that point, they say, oh, well, we gotta, we got to double down on whatever bad policy we were already doing. And I think you can see that in the financial crisis. Libertarians warn taxes, regulations, these housing regulations, this Federal Reserve manipulation of the money supply, going to have bad consequences. And when it did, we bailed out the banks and people demanded more regulations and uh, the Federal Reserve uh, started inflating again. Um, libertarians warned that government policies would produce slow growth. When it does, then there's more demand for entitlements and so on. Um, libertarians warned that drug prohibition, like alcohol prohibition, would create high crime. When you get the high crime rates, a lot of people say, boy, we've got to really step up the drug war. Um, and also, I think, in foreign policy. Libertarians warn that if you go messing around all over the world, you are likely uh, to encounter blowback. When that happens, then people rally around the interventionist foreign policy that uh, started it. So that, I think, is what happened partly to the Rand Paul campaign in 2014. As of 2013, even Republicans were tired of 12 years of war. 2014, with the ISIS videos, people said, man, we have to go in and, and beat the crap out of those guys. Understandably, I'm Scotch-Irish. I'm a Jacksonian myself. I get that response. Um, but I think it does mean that it's a failure to think systematically, just as the failure to think systematically about things like the minimum wage or the Federal Reserve. Ramesh. Um, well, uh, David uh, makes the point that just as uh, not all self-described libertarians are really libertarian, not all self-described conservatives are really conservatives. Absolutely true. I mean, as I said, this, the, the tendency towards wishful thinking is um, something to which adherents of any political philosophy are prone. And uh, if you had 
Uh, you know, if you ask the roughly 40% of the population that will call themselves conservatives, well, are you against raising the minimum wage? Well, a lot of them are going to peel off. Um, uh, I would say, I guess, two things about that. One, the sorts of things that they would peel off on are not good news for libertarians uh, because they're typically the issues where we're talking about limited government. And it turns out they're not as into limited government as anybody on this uh, panel or probably most of you here would like. Um, but I do think that there are, even when you do that peeling away, there, there are more conservatives than there are libertarians. Um, I want to just make an additional point, not sort of maybe directly on point about marijuana legalization. I'd say the same point applies to same-sex marriage. Look, you may favor these things. I favor one of them and not the other. Uh, and you can rightly celebrate those things as, as uh, achievements for liberty. But I think it is important to, to remember that people aren't embracing marijuana legalization, for example, because they've decided that um, people have the right to use drugs there's, there's no cocaine legalization movement that has that kind of appeal. It's just that people decide marijuana is not a big deal. It's not a ge- sort of general philosophy of liberty um, that is being embraced here. Uh, and I would say the same thing, uh, really, on same-sex marriage. I mean, there's a reason why the movement for same-sex marriage was able to go pretty much instantaneously towards rounding up these bakers and florists and, uh, and, uh, and trying to impede their freedom of action um, because it's not ultimately, it's not fundamentally a libertarian movement. And we are not in a libertarian moment. Thanks. I think, um, you know... All non-weed drugs aren't really used that much. I mean, we can talk about heroin and the kind of uh, the, I think, overreaction to the increase in heroin uses that's happened. But still, it's minuscule compared to pot. Pot is the 900-pound elephant of drug use. And so I think there's also a scale issue um, when it comes to all of that. People, every, you know, half of this room has smoked pot. Half of people born after World War II have smoked pot who were adults. And so there's just more of an intuitive thing of like, why is this illegal? You know, I, I've never seen cocaine. You know, that's kind of a different quality drug. Um, uh, just to go that, I want to bounce something off what uh, Connor was talking about. He gave a list of some of the issues that are both gaining traction that libertarians are part of uh, and also uh, have some promise in the future, criminal justice being um, among them. I don't know if he said education reform, but education reform would be one of them too. Um, I want to pose as a kind of reality check of our own selves and in the moment that we live in. um, Josh Barrow, it's kind of a jackass that some of us know and like, uh, (laughs) very funny on Twitter. He had a pithy comment that has stuck with me uh, as a kind of... um, uh, a nice description of the lessons that we should, and by we, I really mean the people in this room, should be learning from the rise of Donald Trump, which is that uh, people ne- don't necessarily have opinions about policies. They have emotions about issues. Um, I think a lot of people have been put on their heels at the rise of Trump and just trying to stammer and articulate, how could this be so? I didn't convince people that this policy that he's changed his own mind on twice this afternoon um, was like X. Um, I think it's, a, it's a, a great challenge for everybody to remind ourselves that we have to win intellectual arguments and we also have to connect with people emotionally as we're doing it because um, that's where they live. Um, people live in a cultural space. They live in an emotional space. They don't all live in a hyper policy space that knows uh, everything and what we're talking about. And as part of that, 
I think, a real challenge. And uh, I think a lot of libertarians, you know, are really happy to talk about gay marriage and weed and, and criminal uh, justice reform and all this kind of stuff. But you know what? We have to talk about economics. We've got a socialist running for president. We've got Hillary Clinton, who's not a democratic socialist, but she's someone whose conception of federal power is really uh, as absolutist as you will see from any kind of mainstream Democrat. If there is something happening on a side of a road in Arkansas, by God, the federal government has to do something about it. And maybe, can we fire the Arkansas people? Let's just do that too. Um, these are big deals. $15 minimum wage in Seattle. How's that going for people? He, Bernie Sanders wants to make $15 minimum wage for the entire country. That's actually insane. And it's kind of popular. Um, so I think libertarians need to get in the ring, as Guns N' Roses taught us uh, on Use Your Illusion 1 and 2, uh, and, and go after there. Because Donald Trump is winning on an anti-trade message. Ted Cruz, who knows better, um, which I guess a lot of us will be saying within the next eight months, um, is talking about like a 10% tax on imports. I think there's, isn't there another word that describes that? Let me think what that might be. Uh, so we have to get in the ring about these economic arguments. Uh, it's, it's on us right now. Uh, Reason uh, uh, did some polling uh, with Emily Eakins uh, a couple of years back, and the kids love socialism, which is horrifying, until you actually ask them follow-up questions. Like, yeah, you know, do you think the government should own the means of production? Like, oh, God, no, that's gross. So part of what we need to do is, uh, is, is a, an education and a, and a connection uh, with people uh, out there. And, and that is a, a challenge, I think, that we face. And, but it's also a, a wonderful kind of uh, opportunity uh, because there are areas of connection um, that have not been made. I, I would say that... After the financial crisis, when a lot of libertarians had a lot of very good arguments, um, it's clear that the ripple effects of the financial crisis, as it's been felt and kind of moderated and filtered through the last 15 years of bad Washington kind of overall management and policy and, and, and lukewarm Japan-style economic performance, uh, people are just kind of tired of it all. And, uh, and so there's, we need to do a better job of, of waging and winning those arguments. I'm just going to jump in here and just say, if I'm allowed to say it at a debate, that I agree with pretty much every word you just said, Matt. So. Hmm. I, don't, I don't disagree with any of that either. Um, I, I think it's important to bear in mind Ramesh's point that a lot of people aren't coming to these issues from a libertarian perspective, even when they're agreeing with libertarian ends. Uh, although I still think that that holds out hope for libertarians. A, a quick side on marijuana, I do think that there is actually one way in which people are approaching that uh, with more libertarian ends than they might have in the past, uh, which is the willingness, I think there's a sense among Americans that it should be okay for states to decide this question. Uh, I think that you would see that poll better than it would have in past times. And I think that the idea of local decision making is in some sense a libertarian one. Um, but the kind of outreach that Matt was talking about, I think, is essential and, and too seldom um, engaged in by um, hardcore libertarians who tend to come at things themselves and tended to come to the philosophy of themselves uh, from reading philosophy and coming from first principles. And I think that there are two different kinds of moments that, that I see uh, that are opportunities to sell people on libertarian principles. One are these emotional moments. I, I think of... Uh, driving my car around um, the mission in San Francisco on my way to meet a friend, and I'm texting her because I can't find parking, 
And on one side of the street, it's, you know, the next morning you have to move your car at 6 a.m. every Tuesday and Thursday because there's street sweeping, right? And on the other side, it's Monday, Wednesday, Friday. You have to get up and move your car at 6 a.m. And so already I see that you're saying you have to sweep this side of the street one day more. I'm kind of suspicious of this. So three days on one side and two days on the other side. And kind of, I actually suspect that you actually only have the street sweeper coming out one day a week on each side and that you're actually just generating revenue for the city and ticketing people, right? And if I tell my friend that story, she says, yeah, we should get down and you know, try and lift these restrictions. On the other hand, if I would have started out and not told the story about the parking and just said, you know, the city of San Francisco is oppressive and we need to get down to City Hall and just rip up some of these regulations, she'd be like, well, no, I am a San Francisco liberal and I kind of disagree with all of that. Um, that's an emotional moment that allows you to kind of, uh, after the fact, drive home some libertarian principles. There are also technological moments. And I think of Uber in Los Angeles, where I live, which has really transformed um, life in the city. It used to be that if you tried to call a cab, um, you couldn't take a cab because it just wouldn't come. You know, you'd call the dispatcher and they would say, oh, yeah, it'll be there in 10 minutes. And three days later, you might get a phone call saying, do you still need the cab? Um, now... I can go all over the city at a moment's notice. Um, fewer drunk driving accidents. There are all these people who are able to cobble together a better living. And it wasn't a change in political philosophy or political power that allowed this to happen. It was straight up technology. It was Uber introducing this technology and doing an end run around the regulations and betting that it would become popular quickly. And then after the fact, people would support it on the principled case that they should be able to get around the taxi cartel. Um, I, I think that libertarians have to do a better job of seizing those kinds of moments and introducing the points about political philosophy after the fact, after people see um, on a practical level that these ideas are good. Uh, I think, uh, to plug them for a second, Institute for Justice is maybe uh, the best at, at doing this when they'll introduce a case to the public and they'll say, really, these monks can't just make wooden caskets? We need to stop them from doing that? Um, and so I see a lot of opportunities to do that and sell libertarian ideas in the future. And I'm optimistic because I think it hasn't been done that much and thus hasn't failed yet. Okay, now we'll go to your questions. Um, please raise your hand. Uh, there will be microphones that will come to you. And I would just remind you the um, two qualities of good questions. Uh, first, they tend to be short. And second, they end in a question mark. So uh, please raise your hands and a microphone will come to you. Right in the back. And if there's another hand, I'll have that microphone come up to you while we're waiting. And <clears throat> Do you believe that maybe approaching things as an anti-federalist standpoint towards things like Bernie Sanders' ideas and saying, if you wish to go do that in Vermont, that's great. You're, you're, you have a small populace there. The people are answerable directly. If you want to do that, go ahead. But as an anti-federalist approach saying, overall, federally, we're, we, these ideas aren't plausible on large scales like that. You think that's a great, better idea than saying your ideas are stupid? <laughs> Who would like to take that? Um, I, I would say it's supplementary. Like uh, it's a, a, every 
we are at reason and I'm, Cato, I'm sure it's the same way. I mean, we're always talking about how to make arguments and you know, how to how to connect with people. And one of them is you say, OK, well, you can buy a house in Columbus, Ohio uh, for one hundred ten thousand dollars. And in Los Angeles, one hundred ten thousand dollars might get you one of those little uh, sweet little uh, uh, wooden uh, homeless guy houses that they bulldozed the other day um, down there. Uh, yet uh, and Columbus is not a boom town, but it's doing pretty well in Ohio. Uh, unemployment is low, and LA has had, you know, double-digit unemployment or close to it for a decade uh, almost. And you could just simply make the argument: maybe they shouldn't have the same federal minimum wage in these two places. They have different costs of living and things like that. And yes, and and I mean, when I my friends from you know Seattle and Portland, please. Go ahead, especially if it's a city that actually not a really good friend lives in. Please go ahead and have your $15 minimum wage there because we need a demonstration project. That'll be very helpful uh, for the rest of us. But as someone who lives in the state of New York, where they're trying to get $15 minimum wage everywhere, um, and you know, New York, uh, ev everywhere north of Manhattan is really, really struggling, and it's uh, bad enough that they can't have you know all kinds of manufacturing jobs that uh, Governor Cuomo doesn't want to see happen. Um, so yes, we, it's part of the arsenal that we can and should use. And, and it is worth pointing out that both Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton are really extreme uh, about their lack of federalism. Um, and uh, and it's, it is an inherently popular argument. It's just that people in American politics are, and libertarians can be like this too, are uh, inconsistent themselves on the question. Yeah, I think the question is whether there are very many consistent federalists around. Um, you know, in the Bush administration, they not only tried to nationalize marriage law, they tried to nationalize the way your local schools are run. Conservatives were in charge in Washington, so they said, let's go ahead and do this. Um, liberals started talking about the benefits of laboratories of democracy when they began to fear that they weren't going to be in charge in Washington but maybe they could get gay marriage or marijuana legalization or $15 minimum wages in the states. So finding the consistent federalists is a challenge, but the question was sort of not whether politicians would agree with it, but whether people would agree with it, and I don't have a good sense of that. I think there's a general sense among the American people, leave things local, leave things to the states. People like that idea until you say, like, for instance, this issue, and then they're like, well, no, but, but, but the right answer to that is this. So we should, we should do that in the whole country. Um, I hope it's a good issue, and it ought to be an issue that would allow libertarians to make sort of political coalition party alliances with people on both the left and the right. Like you say, hey, I don't agree with your views on uh, rent control or uh, the minimum wage, but if you want to try it in your state, then I think that's fine, and similarly drug laws and so on. Uh, but there's a real tendency toward, once I know I'm right, I want to impose it. Uh, I've actually seen some polling specifically on the question of the minimum wage and federalism, and, and it shows that the argument about federalism actually does have some some appeal to the public, that people don't think that the right minimum wage for San Francisco is necessarily the same as the right minimum wage for Alabama. Um, I suspect, though, that, uh, you know, fundamentally, and I think David was sort of getting to this, though, that even if they have that view, that there just aren't a whole lot of voters who care a great deal about federalism, per se. And, you know, like, you know, you don't see bumper stickers, I'm a federalist and I vote. <laughs> <laughs> but if anybody would have them, it would be the people here, right? <laughs> Great. 
Hi, my name is Caleb. Um, so it seems like with the definition of what is a libertarian moment, there's kind of some moving goalposts sometimes. Um, sometimes it's electoral success. Uh, sometimes it's changing demographics. Uh, sometimes it's particular issues winning. Um, so I was wondering if any of you guys would like to suggest a testable definition for the future so we can better determine whether or not uh, future declarations of libertarian moments are in fact libertarian moments. Thanks. Question. I'd like to jump in and say that what the definition shouldn't be, and I think it should not be electoral success. Surely we can all agree that if society is getting a lot more free and if lots of policies are getting enacted that libertarians love, uh, who cares if any libertarians are in office for getting the credit for it or, or who gets the credit for it? It should be the end, uh, not who gets the credit. That's what it's not. Anyone want to venture what it should be? I guess I would use, uh, if I could rewrite my own headline, uh, 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 more of an era. Uh, I, I, the way that we live our lives is, I think, a lot more inherently libertarian than ever before, and that that slope is kind of growing up. Um, and that will have impacts on policy. Again, they'll be sporadic. They'll be fluid. It'll, it'll happen. We'll have a good year, and we'll have some lousy years. Um, I think on balance, just as you can say with the rise of, of kind of classical liberalism since the 1800s and kind of you know, people trading with one another and, and not having as many uh, monarchs and whatnot, um, that things are getting better. We're, we're getting less violent. And so all of that, that's you know, getting back to the Ramesh and, and David uh, kind of uh, notions of, of uh, hey, you know, we've, been, we've been doing a libertarian moment here since 1787 uh, on those arguments. I think, I think with the rise of the internet and decentralized technology and the systematic reduction of the power of gatekeepers and the way that we all swim in markets and we are all uh, personalizing things more and more every single day, um, I think that that is permanent and that will continue growing even if we have a bad politician now and then. So I would, I would say I would call it an era, not a moment. And I think it's just with us. And the, and the more interesting questions for us is how do we convert that into broadening the scope of freedom vis-a-vis -vis the government as well? Um, well, here's, here's a test, um, or at least part of a test. And it's a test that I, I very much hope um, is passed. Uh, and that is in, in five years' time, um, is there going to be more support among the public for free speech or less? Uh, and I don't mean that in, in the sense of, um, you know, not every debate about free speech or the, where we mention free speech goes to the core question. But just a very simple question. Do you think that people should be allowed to say things that are offensive? That question, it seems to me, the trend lines are going in the wrong direction. They're going in the wrong direction, particularly among young people. I think if we're going to have a libertarian moment worthy of the name, that needs to change. Mm -hmm. I, to, to quickly add on that, you know, uh, a part of uh, our ongoing thesis is that when people feel like they're dis their values are disrespected for a long time, that's when they explode out of them. And you can argue that the Trump support, they're exploding out of constrictions on what is considered to be acceptable political discourse. Hmm. Uh, and so uh, I couldn't possibly loathe Trump and Trumpism more. However, I think there is something healthy about the reflex of blowing up those boundaries of political discourse. Connor mentioned it before of going to South Carolina and saying the Iraq war was a big fat mistake. It was, and he won. That's kind of cool. Um, 
despite everything that's not cool about that. Uh, so uh, I, I agree. I'm not sure that is a detestable thing. I think it is one of the biggest fights that we have on our hand right now because there's a lot of anecdotal evidence of culturally we are constricting our zones for uh, free speech and our traditions of it. And, and we have to have that culture if we're going to have the laws to ultimately back it up. So it is a, a serious problem. But that the Trump phenomenon maybe shows that there's people out there who feel like, screw you guys and your mores. We want to be able to say crazy ass stuff anytime we want to. Okay, so one right Sorry. there in the middle and then um, a second over on that side in the back. Hi, my name is Chang Yuyin, and uh, I'm from the Institute for Humane Studies. So I was a Cato intern. I know the drill. I asked a question. What does it take um, to transform libertarian moment to libertarian momentum? Hmm. Question. Hmm. Well, we've been talking about some libertarian momentum, marijuana, marriage, opposition to surveillance, um, opposition to... Uh, some of the things that happened in criminal justice. That doesn't look maybe quite as good as it did six months ago, but still, the 90s and the 80s were really bad in terms of criminal justice, and I think there is now a coming to our senses about that. So that's momentum. That's not necessarily ideological momentum. You know, I'm just remembering from my, like, college sophomore British history textbook this line about how um, the repeal of the Corn Laws was the only ideologically driven uh, policy of the early 19th century, but lots of policies were improving during the early 19th century. And I guess that kind of stuck with me because, sure, a lot of policies that get changed, it's not because people suddenly came to a new ideological sense, although in some broad sense... Classical liberalism changes people's minds, and that changes policies from slavery right on up to marriage equality. Um, it doesn't mean they necessarily adopt all of libertarianism, but they adopt that part, equal rights under the law. Um, we did have, you know, when I was a kid, we had 90% income tax rates for a few people in this country. When I was a young man, we had 70% income tax rates, and then they went way down, and they've gone back up a little, but not so much. That's partly ideological, and it's partly people noticing the effects of those uh, things. So there has been some libertarian momentum. I mean, even Richard Nixon got rid of the draft. He was no libertarian, but he saw the argument for that, and that was an ideologically driven campaign. It just wasn't very ideological by the time it got to Richard Nixon's uh, desk. So... I think we're seeing some momentum. We're also seeing, as Ramesh says, the free speech issue is one uh, that we're seeing the wrong kind of momentum on right now. And you could argue that it would be easier today to argue that we're in a socialist moment if you add Jeremy Corbyn to Bernie Sanders. Elderly white men are really rallying for socialism. Uh, but they are unfortunately getting a lot of young people to agree depending on what they actually understand socialism to be. So we have some momentum. America's always had some libertarian momentum. The culture, as Matt and Nick emphasize, is giving us more of that kind of momentum these days. How much it translates into policy, we're still waiting to see. I think people are always trying to win the Super Bowl 
um, and have their team win the Super Bowl, and which is exciting. It must be great to win the Super Bowl. Uh, but I don't think that's how, if you work backwards for the libertarian victories that have happened in the last five years, okay, guns are now an individual right, recreational marijuana is a possibility, uh, gay marriage is legal. Uh, we actually held the line on spending for a couple of years there, and including military spending, as I mentioned. Um, some of these, reverse engineer, are were kind of the results of the political process, but a lot of them just were kind of random or cultural, or they there is different avenues. So you look opportunistically for where you can win, and you win, and you notch that victory, and then you turn and you go in the next direction. I mean, the Reason Foundation, which publishes Reason's journalism their public policy work is basically when local politicians realize that they're really out of money. So they got to do something different. And that difference is reforming their unsustainable pension systems. God, that's boring. Nobody wants to talk about that. It's not, you, you can win some elections in California and San Jose and San Diego, you know, on, on these kind of things, but ultimately it's not sexy work, but you take it where you can get it, and uh, and sometimes it comes from unlikely places. So being open to that and following it opportunistically and realizing you might not get your Super Bowl victory, I think is wise. Okay, I think we have time for two questions. I see, is that Megan in the back? Um, and then we'll get uh, this gentleman right here. Hi, as David said, I'm Megan. Um, and I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the courts and regulatory issues. We've been talking a great deal about elections, but in fact, I mean, it looks to me like the most likely outcome is that Heller is going to go down, Citizens United is going to go down, that in fact, most of the progress that has been made on a bunch of sort of libertarian style economic liberty is going to be rolled back as of the appointment of the next Supreme Court justice. And similarly, when you look at regulatory agencies, things like the Obama administration pushing this incredibly illiberal definition of these speech codes and sexual harassment codes and so forth on campuses, um, in part because of consumer demand. I mean, right? It's not just the Obama administration's making them do this. It's obviously also how college students feel. Um, when you combine those two things, which are out of the limelight and decidedly not the Super Bowl and unsexy, but look like they're they're going to be a pretty big blow for a lot of battles that have been fought for a while. I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about that. In court, who wants it? Well, Damon Root wrote an excellent book about the uh, progress that we've made in uh, the Supreme Court in the understanding of individual rights in the Constitution. Um, I guess I'm a little less negative about the prospects for the Supreme Court because justices don't like to just overrule and say, no, we were wrong, Heller was wrong, uh, there's not an individual right. Um, I think more likely is some trimming and some narrowing and maybe states get away with more uh, rigid regulatory regimes than they would get away with right now or, or last year. Um, Citizens United, I don't know, that, that could be one. There are still civil libertarians on the left um, who ought to be stronger, on, who, who are stronger on that, but who seem to have less sway right now. Um, but you're right, that's certainly one of the things that is driving a lot of libertarians to think, uh, we just have to elect a Republican president, no matter how bad he is, uh, to keep the Democrats from appointing uh, another representative of the Supreme Court. And what that means, of course, is that we have a divide in the country that just hasn't been settled. There are issues in the Supreme Court that are settled. We're not going back uh, to undo the civil rights decisions of the 60s and 70s. Um, there's a lot of basic free speech decisions that we will not uh, overturn. 
Um, I don't. I don't think we're gonna. I, I don't think the Republicans could put in a Supreme Court that would overturn gay marriage. Um, find ways to tweak it and narrow it. Maybe I don't think they would do that. Um, and then the regulatory things, as you talk about, yes, so much of that happens under the radar, and there is always a constituency that you can serve. And this is the general problem of concentrated benefits and diffuse costs. The organized student activists like rules like that. The organized university administrators like it. It may be that an awful lot of college students don't like rules like that, but they're not organized that way. So looking at libertarians in the policy world, we're always going to face the problem that, at least in my view, our policies benefit the unorganized majority, but often do not provide concentrated benefits for the concentrated uh, activist groups, whether it is oil companies or textile firms uh, or student activists, concentrated benefits and diffuse costs. That's why we try to raise things to a constitutional level, to rule as many of these things off, uh, uh, off the table for the government, but we obviously have not um, managed to rule enough of them off the table. And to jump in just for a second on free speech on college campuses, there's certainly a fight going on on campuses all over the country about the bounds of free speech or the cultures of free speech at private institutions. I'm confident that the forces of free speech can can win those fights just as they did in the late 80s and early 90s when there was a similar round of this, particularly because a lot of the speech that college activists are trying to punish and suppress they aren't even edge cases when it comes to the First Amendment. They're so clearly protected speech. Um, you know, we're no longer talking about someone trying to hold a Klan rally on a college campus and getting into a debate about uh, whether this is fighting words or incitement. Uh, we're, we're talking about, to use the term that's popular on campus, microaggressions oftentimes. And some of the speech codes that uh, FIRE is fighting, even on public colleges, I can't imagine that they would lose in any kind of a court battle. Uh, it, it, to me, if, if the legal strategy chooses wise, wise cases, it, it will only um, be a bulwark for the forces of free speech. And I also think that it is still a minority of students who want to punish and s suppress speech a vocal minority that is, uh, as Megan mentioned, getting help from some of the ways that hostile, uh, hostile environment, hostile climate regulations are being handed down. Uh, but those regulations are also something that can just change with uh, the next president, whoever it is, and can always change with the next president, whoever it is. So that's always kind of a threat, how you are going to interpret these things, how the um, federal agencies are going to interact. But on the whole, I think that free speech can win that. Okay, we have time for a short question and a short answer to this gentleman who has been waiting patiently. The microphone's coming down to you. Thank you. Matt, you talked about a libertarian era and about converting libertarian <clears throat> thoughts to momentum. And my question is, haven't we as libertarians and limited government conservatives been pursuing these unicorns of... Uh, uh, a man on a white horse who will come to Washington and fix things, and legislation in Congress which never gets 60 votes, and so we're continually trying to climb the hill. And what would anybody on the panel think about the idea that what we really need is a second Bill of Rights that limits the power of federal government in concrete ways, like the power to regulate or the power to borrow, 
and that in much the same way that James Madison built a coalition of states and reformers in Congress to get Congress to propose the Bill of Rights, that a similar group of reformers today could mobilize two-thirds of the states together with reformers in Congress to force Congress to propose, say, a balanced budget amendment or uh, a constitutional version of the Reins Act, and in doing so, create a century where, unlike the last, where power was flowing toward Washington, two-thirds of the states were finding a way to take power away from Washington and create the kind of decentralized government that we'd all like to see. It's a big uh, question for a short answer. Does anyone want to talk My about My short Article answer, because I can see that David's going to actually have a good answer, um, is that <laughs> my wife, if she emailed me right now or texted me right now and saying, can we go out to dinner with Michael Moynihan uh, on next Friday, I would say, I don't know. I, I, I got so much stuff. In I can't answer that question. So um, it's really hard for me to see in a future that involves a new constitutional convention and getting two thirds of the states to do this and that, that guy, I'm, I, I'm personally a, a not grand planning type of person. So my instinct is to say, sounds great, totally unrealistic, but hopefully there are, are bigger dreamers among us. Any quick dreamers? Come on, man, give your wife an answer. She, it's, it's a simple, <laughs> you don't know Moynihan like I question. do. question. Okay, thank you all so much for coming. Please join us for drinks and welcome, uh, congratulate all the speakers. Thank them for so much.